This is Media Business Matters, the podcast about why recent news in the media business matters to people who love media. I'm Amanda Lotz. This edition of Media Business Matters is the second of four special episodes. On March 30, 2017, the University of Michigan hosted the Future of Digital Media Businesses Symposium, which brought together four scholars who have been studying how different media industries have been disrupted by digitization. Each spoke about the transition to digital production and distribution of media industries for 30 to 40 minutes. Experts from each music recording, book publishing, television, and film industries. The talks focus on how and why each business has changed, the consequences for those working in the industry and the media they make, and what remain the greatest challenges going forward. We offer the audio from those talks here, and we'll post one a week for the next three weeks. Apologies in advance for some of the microphone glitches throughout. This episode features John B. Thompson, a professor of sociology at the University of Cambridge and fellow of Jesus College, Cambridge, and his research examines the book publishing industry. His many publications include Ideology in Modern Culture, The Media and Modernity, Political Scandal, Books in the Digital Age, and Merchants of Culture. His books have been translated into more than a dozen languages, and he was awarded the European Amalfi Prize for Sociology and the Social Sciences in 2001 for Political Scandal. In, for the last 15 years, he has been working on the changing structures of the book publishing industry in Britain and the United States. His most recent book, Merchants of Culture, is a comprehensive account of the transformation of Anglo-American trade publishing from the 1960s to the present. He is currently working on a sequel to be published in 2018 that is focused on the impact of the digital revolution on the world of trade publishing. Thank you very much, uh, Amanda, for inviting us here. Uh, And Lee, I really enjoyed that talk. Thank you. And my talks are going to follow on very well, I think, from a talk on music for reasons you'll you'll see shortly. I'm going to be talking about the book publishing industry and especially about what happens when this great revolution of our time, the digital revolution, collides with the oldest of the media industries, the book publishing industry. Been with this for over five centuries, since Gutenberg invented the printing press back in the 1450s. Books are deeply entrenched in our culture. So what happens when this technological revolution runs up against this old media industry. Now, I'm only going to be talking about one sector of publishing. This, like all media industries, is an immensely diversified industry. Industries, to use your phrase. Many different areas and sectors of the book publishing industry, including academic publishing, including professional publishing, reference publishing, illustrated art book publishing, and so on. We could go on and on. I'm not going to talk about any of them. I'm just going to talk about mainstream trade publishing. That sector of publishing uh, that you encounter when you walk into a Barnes & Noble and see all those books on the tables in front of you. Books aimed at a wide general audience, fiction and nonfiction. That's what in the business is called trade publishing. So I'm just going to focus on that sector. Now much of the debate about the impact of the digital revolution on the book publishing industry has been heavily focused on 
the astonishing rise of the e-book. And I, too, am going to say something about that, quite a lot about that. But I should say straight away that don't get the impression that that's all we should be talking about. That's just one issue, or it is an important issue. But the impact of the digital revolution on the book publishing industry, like any media industry, is much more pervasive and widespread than that would suggest, and I'm going to come back to this point a little bit later. But let's begin by transporting ourselves vicariously, as it were, back to the early 2000s, about 15 years ago. And imagine that you were working in one of those big trade houses in New York, Random House, or Simon & Schuster, or whatever. Maybe you were an editor there, or maybe you were a manager, or whatever. And you knew that all around you there was this enormous ferment, this enormous disruption taking place as the digital revolution was sweeping through the media industries. And exactly the kind of things that Lee was talking about in terms of the music industry was very much in the minds of all the people working in these publishing houses in New York. And I know because I was interviewing them all that through that time period. I've been working on this industry for about longer than I care to remember, 15, 20 years. So I was interviewing people through that time, and I know what they were thinking about. And they were looking over their shoulders at what was happening in the music industry. Very conscious that something dramatic was going on. And Lee alluded to it, but I'm glad that he didn't show the slide that I'm going to show. In the early 2000s, they knew that this was going on in the music industry. This is the collapse of revenue in the music industry, and it is dramatic. Yes, in 1999, as Lee said, was the peak point. But then it began to collapse at an alarming pace. And even when digital downloads began to take effect from 2004 with the introduction of iTunes around that time, and you see legitimate, legal, paid-for downloads, apart from the kind of illegal sharing that had occurred before, it doesn't make up. It doesn't fill the gap, and the revenue continues to decline. That's dramatic. And everyone in the industry knew that. They knew this was happening. And if you look at the decline, I'll just put an arrow on that. Wow, that's steep. That is steep. And they were sitting there in their large buildings in Broadway. The Random House building is a very elegant, large building on Broadway. Up there on the 14th, 15th floor, thinking, I'm not sure I'm going to be sitting here much longer. Because revenues were collapsing in other kindred industries. And they thought, they thought, many thought and many feared that what was happening in the music industry was the future of publishing foretold. They were anxious and they were worried. And you would be too if you were working in that industry. So, what did they do? 
Well, of course, they analyzed in great detail what, it would, what had been going on in the music industry. They had that few years of knowledge to draw on. And they knew that the Namster experience was disastrous. So one of the things they actively did was they wanted to put their digital content legally out into the market. They didn't want a situation like prohibition to arise. Prohibition stimulates the illegal trade in goods. So they didn't want that to arise. So they actively digitized their content. They re-engineered all their production process to deliver e-books as a regular outcome of the production process in order to put into the market digital content that could be bought legally. And they then also went back to their authors and to literary states and they reworked contracts in order to ensure that they controlled digital rights on their backlist, among other things. But despite all this proactive movement on the part of the digital, of the part of the publishing houses, and therefore it would be wrong to think that the publishing houses were simply not doing anything holding on to their print books, not wanting to release digital books. On the contrary, they desperately wanted to get them out there in order to avert illegal trade in contraband goods, among other things. But despite all of this, there was a problem. A simple but huge problem. Namely, no one wanted it. They put it out there, but no one bought it. As late as 2006, e-book sales counted for less than one-tenth of one percent of the revenue of the trade houses. That's like an accounting error. It was tiny. But then, in 2007, things began to change. Suddenly, dramatically, they began to change. And of course, it was linked to the introduction in November 2007 of the Kindle, Amazon's Kindle. Now, watch what happened. You're working in this house, you're working in these publishing houses in this industry, and this is what happens. 2008, oof, a little bit of an uplift. Still small, $63 million of ebook sales in in industry, trade publishing, that's worked about 13 billion. So still small, like half of 1%. But still, it's suddenly rising a little bit. You can see it. 2009. Oof, that's big. Wow. Things really beginning to move now. 2010. Wow, that's really growing. Oh my God. Oh my God, you're in that house, you're in this publishing thing. Blimey, this something is going on here. This is dramatic. And remember, trade publishing is not a growth industry. It's static, it's flat, it's a mature market. Nothing grows, it just grows by the rate of inflation year on year, if it grows at all. And this is growth. This is growth. This is dramatic. 
My goodness, this is frightening. By 2012, it's about 20% of your sales are ebook now. Remember, it was one tenth of 1% back in 2006. Now it's 20% and it's growing. Where is this going to go? 50%? 70%? Maybe music is the future of publishing foretold. And then something equally dramatic happened. It stopped. <laughs> it just stopped. Wow. No one expected that. It stopped. In fact, it slightly declined in 2013. It slightly declined. And if you, if you analyze the figures out, well, first of all, this is the growth. I just superimposed growth on this. The red line is growth. You see, the growth was tremendous in 2009 and 2010, 350% back in 2009. It had fallen to zero by 2013. The growth, rapid to begin with, and then it declines. And then if we look at it a different way, as a percentage of total ebook, as a percentage of total sales, it produces the kind of classic technology S-curve. And if we, if we change the axis, we can see the S-curve more clearly. It's very clear. It rises dramatically, and then it levels off. It levels off. And it levels off at around 20%. No one knew this in 2010. No one knew it. I know, I know because I was interviewing all the people at the time. And everyone had a different view. And some people thought it's going to be 50%. Other people said it's going to be 80%. And other people said the print book is dead. But it didn't happen. No one knew. No one knew. But now that S-curve is deeply, deeply misleading. It looks compelling. It looks really interesting. But if you're an analyst of what's going on, it tells you nothing. It tells you nothing. Why? Because it treats all the books the same. It just merges them all together and treats it as an average. So if you're trying to understand what's really going on in this industry, you've got to dig a bit deeper. You've got to break out the books into different kinds of books. It's not easy to do this, but I know a lot of people in the industry, and they share some data with me, so I was able to do this. Let's see what happens when you do it. Let's break out that curve over that same time period according to different kinds of books. And what do we get? We don't get a nice, simple curve like that. We get that. Or, to put it differently, we get that. We get a spectrum. We get an uh, enormous range of S-curves broken out by category of book. Now, you see that red one right at the top? I hope you can't read the legends at the bottom. So you won't know what that is. But what is it? Well, it's romance that shoots up and rises up to 50%. 50% of all romance is sold as ebook, But it, too, levels off. Indeed, slightly begins to decline. Fascinating. Fascinating. All those other lines, the orange and yellow ones up there at the top, are genre fiction. Sci-fi, thriller, romance, etc. They are the highest in terms of ebook proportions. Back in 2010, 2005, no one guessed this. It's, it's a sober reminder of how 
poor we are at forecasting what happens in technological change. No one forecasts it. And many people I talk to said, well, what's, you know, what do you think is going to happen? People very well informed in the industry. They all thought that when the e-book revolution came, it would be driven by businessmen reading e-books on their devices, sitting around in airport lounges and so on and so forth. That's what they thought. Be driven by businessmen. In fact, it was driven by women reading romance fiction on their Kindles. No one knew that. No one guessed it. In the middle, you have a range of non-fiction books, those blue and purple lines uh, and a green line in there in the middle. So high, the higher level, the ones, are things like um, biography, autobiography, history, and so on. The lower levels are things like um, family and relationships, um, uh, health, uh, spirituality, spirituality, business, and business is one of the lower ones there, in fact. And then at the bottom, the kind of gray and brown or whatever, the bottom there, are a set of categories like cookbooks, travel books, children's books, which don't go anywhere, which remain under 10%. They don't even form an S-curve because they never go anywhere. They remain very low. <coughs> so, the figures, these are the figures for the US, the figures for other countries, the, the only really comparable pattern you'll see is in the UK. The only comparable pattern. Somewhat similar, but the plateaus are at lower levels and usually lag behind by about a year or so, but there tend to be lower levels and lagging. In other languages and other countries, like in European countries, in France and Germany and Italy and so on, ebooks never really took off. They never really took off. They never really got above 5% so far. There's still a pretty small proportion of sales. So I want to, if I've got time here, to just spend a, a few minutes just dwelling on this fascinating, fascinating, I love this graph, actually. It's just so it's beautiful. And I want to just dwell on it for a few minutes and see if we can try to explain it. You know, what, see if we can try to figure out why it is that there are such big differences in the performance of different kinds of books in relation to ebook and print. And then I will try to draw some lessons from this. So I'm going to suggest that there are four important factors that I'm going to develop a kind of model for you to, to explain this result, to try to explain the result. So I'm going to suggest there are four factors that explain the variation. So this is kind of theory for you now. I mean, you can disagree with me if you like, but let me put it forward and see what you think. The most striking difference between the categories that sell well as ebooks and those that don't is that the ones that sell well consist largely of narrative linear text. Narrative linear text, and the ones that don't, don't consist of linear, narrative linear text. So there's a difference in textual character. The ones that sell well, like romance fiction, thriller, sci-fi, and so on. Straight narrative text, an easy read, easy, immersive read. You get into it, pew, you zip right through. The ones that don't sell well as e-books tend to be work books that are more complicated, that use more like reference books. You're going back and forth, travel books, cookbooks, etc., etc. 
Ne not an immersive linear read. So there's a difference in textual character. Second, there's a difference in the user experience, or what's called in the, in, in the industry the form factor. From the viewpoint of the user, reading narrative linear text on a Kindle or an e-book reader is a very easy, straightforward experience. You just tap the screen, go to the next page, tap the screen, you can change the size of the typeface, etc., etc. Very, very easy. And it is an immersive linear read. You're just sweeping through from beginning to end. You're not going back and forth. You don't have any need to go back and forth unless you forgot it or something. You just keep moving. So the form factor is good. The technology fits the user experience very effectively. But as soon as you move to other kinds of non-linear text where you're moving back and forth or where, heaven forbid, there are illustrations, the form factor is nowhere near as good. And especially if you're using a black and white e-ink device like a Kindle. You know, the illustrations are going to be poor. So the form factor doesn't really work so well. A third factor, and this is more complicated, but I'm going to give it a name. I'm going to call it the possession value of the object. Okay, I'm going to call it possession value. So, what I mean by this is that some books are the kind of books you want to own. You want to have them. You want to own them. You want to be able to possess them as a physical object, to put them on a shelf in your room or display them in the front room or whatever, partly because you want to go back to them and read them again or you want to share them with others or you simply want them there as an expression of who you are, of your identity. Or you want them there so that other people will think that's who you are. <laughs> the kind of person who likes to read, you know, whoever. And you want that there as an expression of identity. And also you value the materiality of the object, its aesthetic form. It's a beautiful work. You like that and you want that in your home or your space or whatever. So it has a possession value. I'm going to call, I'm going to give it that label. And then on the other hand, there are some books that have relatively little possession value. I mean, there are probably not a lot of people who want to display Fifty Shades of Grey on their shelf or in their front room. You know, there are many books that people are reading, like, for example, romance fiction. They just want to zip through the book, absorb the content and the story, and go on to the next one. They don't necessarily want a whole shelf full of them. So those books do not have much possession value. They're not books that you want to give as gifts. And gifting is very important in the world of books. And that's possession value. Fourth, there is, of course, an element of technology here, too. Because the books that tend to have high EP ratios are books that it's very easy to produce in a digital format. You simply re-engineer your production processes so that the the file you generate at the end of the process can be converted into an EPUB file or whatever. It's very easy to do it. But more complicated books like heavily illustrated book, cookbooks, travel books, and so on, it is much more complicated and much more costly to produce suitable digital files that can be read on a suitable reader. It's very expensive to do it. And the 
sales may not warrant or justify all the expense that you put into it. So technology is clearly a factor here. So this array of factors together help us to explain the differential levels of the ebook uptake. So the model looks a bit like that. There are four factors here, and those books that have a high EP ratio have those properties. Those that have a low EP, that is low ebook to print ratio, have those properties that I've just described to you, and therefore you have the spectrum at the bottom, where on the one hand you have genre fiction, like romance, sci-fi, thriller, and so on. In the middle you have narrative non-fiction, like autobiography, history, narrative history, and so on. And then at the bottom, you have those categories of books which have never really gone anywhere so far as e-books like travel, cooking, children's books, and so on. So let's now stand back from the detail and reflect on the broader implications of these things we've been looking at. Of course, we can't generalize on the basis of the limited amount of data I've given you now, although I won't say which company it is, but it is a big one, and therefore the data that I've been using here is pretty indicative of what's going on in mainstream trade publishing in the U.S. But what conclusions can we draw from this? Well, I'm going to make an argument here, which you can disagree with. Please do. I look forward to hearing your criticisms. But I'm going to make an argument here, and the argument is this. That e-books do not represent a new form of the book. What they amount to is a new format of the book. So I'm drawing a really important distinction between a new form and a new format. There are many people, when the, when the digital revolution began to hit the publishing industry, thought, this is the opportunity to completely reinvent what a book is. A book could be all sorts of moving parts. You know, like a, a sound and light show. A book becomes something completely different. It has audible stuff, it has audio in it, it has video clips in it, it has all sorts of things going on in it. And I can tell you, a lot of people invested a lot of money to create the new song and dance book in which lots of other things were going on. Lots of companies started doing this and I worked with a lot of these companies. I followed them from their moments of birth, the loads of VC capital that was put into them, the high expectations and excitement to their death because most of them didn't work. However, what really did work although in a certain defined and specific way, is that e-books became a new format. Like, for example, the mass market paperback is a format of the book. E-books is another format, another way to deliver the content to the user if they prefer to read it on a screen. So that's the thesis. E-book is not a new form, but a new format of the book. Now, if it's a new format, well, that's not particularly disruptive for the publishing industry. Because the publishing industry has always dealt with a series of new formats over time. I mean, the classic example was Alan Lane's invention of the paperback back in the 1930s. 
the new format of the paperback. And then you had in the 1950s the development of the trade paperback, the larger size paperback that you now see in the bookstores. And then you had the development of the mass market paperback. Those are three different forms. And of course you have the hardback. Those are four different form formats in the publishing industry. Well, e-books becomes a fifth, another. Not particularly radical. It's another format. And publishers know how to deal with formats. They window them. They price them differently, they introduce them in different time periods, and so on and so forth. It's another way of creating another revenue stream. So if this is right, if it's true that e-books are another format rather than new form, the implications are quite significant for the publishing industry. It means it is not likely to be as disruptive for the industry as the digital revolution hitting other kinds of industries, like, for example, the music industry or the newspaper industry. Nowhere near is disruptive, if this is true. Ebooks just become another revenue stream for the industry. And therefore, if this is true, then, as I say, it's not likely to undermine the industry as significantly, substantively as it did in other industries. And it also enables us to see that what happened in the music industry that we looked at a few minutes ago may not be a good model for understanding what is happening in the book publishing industry. In fact, it might be completely misleading. While the revenues in the music industry collapsed in that decade from 2000-2010, as we saw, the revenues in the trade book publishing industry, and indeed in book publishing more generally, did not. In fact, they remained remarkably stable. Look at that. That's the decade of disruption. That's the decade of disruption. From 2008, when the, just after the Kindle's introduced, to 2015, more or less where we are today. And the revenues, surprisingly, go up. They don't go down. They go up. And the orange there is the e-book share of that revenue. Now that's fascinating if you compare it with what we saw a few minutes ago with the music industry. So, partly of course, this stabilization of revenues to date is related to the fact that many of those managers and executives in the publishing industry knew the lessons of what had happened in the music industry and they proactively sought to avoid the same fate. Like, as I said, trying to, trying to feed the market actively with legal digital content that people could acquire legally and seeking to control prices through agency agreements, as it's known in the business. This is a hugely contentious in issue in the publishing industry and the source of great conflict, indeed, investigation by the Department of Justice's issue, or by the, by the Department of Justice, as you probably know, in a big legal case where, which was fought over this issue, where publishers try to control e-book prices to prevent price deflation in the industry, to prevent the hemorrhaging of value out of the industry. But this also suggests that there is not a single model 
that describes the impact of the digital revolution on the media industries. There is a plurality. We need a plurality of models. There are similarities and differences, but it's likely that what happens in one industry or indeed one sector of one industry is going to be different from what happens in others. And we shouldn't try, we shouldn't assume that it's going to be the same across them. So at the end of the day, is this what the impact of the digital revolution in the book publishing industry is all about? The creation of a new format, not a new form, relatively stable revenue, etc., etc. Is that it? If you could jump on a time machine and take yourselves forward to 2030 and look back with the benefit of hindsight over the first three decades of the 21st century and ask yourself, what was the impact of the digital revolution on the publishing industry? Is that it? Let's not go too quickly. Probably not. Probably not. And let me conclude by mentioning four other ways in which the digital revolution, despite that, is having a big impact in the publishing industry. First, there's what I call the hidden revolution that no one outside the industry ever sees, and journalists certainly never see it. What I mean by that is that Within the publishing industry from the 1980s on, pre-internet, to mention that, to use the phrase that Lee rightly expressed, the industry has been internally revolutionizing itself. And in fact, all the key processes in the industry are now digital processes. It's a digital workflow. For, think about it, from the very moment that the writer writes, how do they write today? Well, no longer a pen and pencil, a computer, tap, digital. As soon as they tap a key, it's digital. From that point on to the very point at which you pick up a physical book, that whole process has become a digital workflow. The book is now a digital file. It's a database. That's what it is. In the industry, that's what it is. It's manipulated and changed and adapted and revised and so on and so forth. And even now, printing often happens digitally. So, even though to you as the consumer, you might look at this and say, "Bah, it's an old-fashioned print-on-paper book. Nothing has changed. You would be wrong. Everything has changed. The process has been revolutionized, revolutionized even if the product looks the same. That's the hidden revolution. And it's total inside the industry. And it was hard fought within the industry. Everyone had to be retrained. And there were many, many disasters along the way. A second huge transformation is the retail revolution. This is huge. And everything I have said up till now could be completely changed by this. By this. It's huge. And it's entirely a product of the digital revolution. Entirely. So, remember how books are bought. Some of you probably remember back in the 1960s and 70s, books were bought in the wall in, in, in the mall bookstores like B. Dalton, Walden Books, some of you might remember those names. 
Then in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, it was the superstore chains, the Barnes and Noble and Borders rolling out their huge cathedral-like bookstores across America and fighting it to the death until eventually Borders went under. Barnes and Noble remaining triumphant? Well, not so sure about that because at the same time from the late 90s on, as a product of the internet, in the digital revolution, Amazon began. And very quickly, Amazon became the most powerful player in the book industry, as it now is. The most powerful player. Far more powerful than any of those publishers in New York. More powerful. Why do I say that? Well, because Amazon today probably accounts for around 40% of physical book sales and probably... 70 to 75% of ebook sales. Never in the 500 year history of book publishing has there ever been one organization with the power that Amazon now has today. And it's entirely a product of the digital revolution. That is the retail revolution. Which means, in many ways, in some ways, the future of this industry is in the hands of one organization. They're calling the shots. That, that kind of market share gives you enormous power. Power to negotiate terms with suppliers. And that's a very fraught, intense issue when those cycles of contract negotiation, come, renegotiation come up every two or three years. And power to determine what you as readers see, what you learn about, what you hear about when you get your mail shots from Amazon, and so on. The third issue, hugely significant, is what I'm going to call discoverability. This is fascinating and related to exactly what Lee was talking about earlier. In the old world of the physical bookstores, when Barnes and Noble and border stores were everywhere, how did you discover books? Well, you walked into a bookstore, you browsed. Discoverability was linked to browsability. The ability to just browse around, see what's on show, what's new. How do you discover books when there are no longer bookstores? Or when there are fewer bookstores? And there are fewer bookstores. The numbers are declining. How do you discover them? Well, that's a difficult question. It's a difficult question. In this new world where information is largely gathered online, how, what is how is that coming to you? You're not going to be, you're not browsing through a bookstore anymore. This is a huge issue. It's a huge issue. And it means also that publishers are losing control of the ability to get their books seen, to make them visible. In the old world, of Barnes and Nobles and Borders and so on, they determined to a large extent what books appeared on those front tables inside of the big Barnes and Noble and Borders stores. But now they don't determine what gets sent to you by Amazon. That is being done in a completely different way through recommendation algorithms controlled by powerful players like Amazon. That is now what is driving discoverability. So we're in a new world. And this is really complicated and really difficult. And publishers are now scrambling to figure out 
how they can gain some kind of control over discoverability in a world where there are no and fewer physical bookstores. That's the big question. And it's difficult for the industry. It's difficult because of the structure of distribution in the book publishing industry. I don't have time to explain this in detail, but very, very briefly. For 500 years, publishers never sold to readers. They don't sell to you. You don't even know who the publishers are, probably. They don't sell to you. There's no relation between publishers and readers and consumers. Publishers sell to retailers. And the retailers then are reselling onto the consumers. Now, that was fine in the old world of local bookstores, Barnes and Nobles, even mall stores. That was fine, no problem. But now, in this new world in which we live, it's a big problem. Why? Because now, if there is one player who controls so much of the market, they have something in this new digital age that we live in that those older booksellers like the local bookstore never had. Now this new powerful player has a secret tonic that is the source of its power. And that's called data. And it's data on you, all of you. All of you who go onto the site, buy anything, browse anything, that is data. And data is power. And they use that data to market back to you, constantly, constantly market back to you. The publishers have none of it. Therefore, they have no power in this game. None. They've suddenly woken up to the fact that they have given away the most precious thing. But it's too late. Maybe not too late. But they're scrambling to try to figure out how to do it. And that is the key problem of discoverability. Huge and significant in the industry. Fascinating topic. And finally, because I'm running out of time, there's this. Wow. This is fascinating. And we haven't even, I haven't even touched on it. The digital revolution has also created a massive explosion of self-publishing. And this is huge. It's huge. Now, self-publishing is not new. It's began back in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s with the so-called vanity publishers. It's been around for a long time, probably a century. But the digital revolution totally transformed the nature of self-publishing. It made it possible for the first time to create platforms in which writers and authors, any of you, any of you could do it tomorrow, could publish simply by uploading your text into a platform, you don't have to pay a penny. The old vanity publishing, you had to pay like thousands of dollars to get your book published. That's why it was called vanity publishing. In these new platforms, you don't pay a penny. You just upload your text, push a button, poof, it's published. It's an Amazon, it's a Kindle Direct book up there on the Amazon site. You can do it tomorrow. It'll take you a few minutes. This is profound because it has now changed the very nature of the publishing industry where agents and publishers are always the gatekeepers of the industry. And now the gatekeepers can be bypassed so easily, so easily. And this is a huge explosion. I won't go into the figures, but the numbers are staggering, are totally staggering. 
I mean, one of these self-publishing companies, one of them in Silicon Valley, just one of many, just a small organization, there are only about 15, 20 people working there. This one company alone publishes, in inverted commas, or allows to be published on its platform 120,000 new books every year. I mean, that may not be, mean very much to you, but in, if you look at the traditional publishing houses, traditional publishing houses in the US together probably publish about 250 to 300,000 new books per year. This is one little operation in Silicon Valley alone publishing 120,000 books per year. You can see the scale of this is huge. Huge. Now you might think, okay, a lot of it's getting published, but no one's reading it, no one's selling, da 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 da. You would be wrong. Some of these books do really, really well. So this is not a case where just the long tail and nothing happens. Some of them do really well. And moreover, to make it even more interesting, although these are in many ways two parallel universes, mainstream publishing, self-publishing, or what's called indie publishing on the other hand, in many ways, they're two parallel universes, but they overlap in very interesting, complex ways. And some of the greatest bestsellers, the biggest bestsellers in mainstream publishing, start their lives as self-published books in that parallel universe. And for the big mainstream publishing houses, they are looking across at that world of self-publishing as a kind of big annotated slush pile where they can watch what's happening and if something is doing rather well on the bestseller lists on Kindle, they just go in there and pluck it out and put it into the machine of mainstream publishing and in some cases it becomes a bestseller. So two clear examples, Fifty Shades of Grey, of course, huge, huge, huge bestseller began as a self-published title and the Martian, another huge, huge bestseller that began as a self-published There are many, many examples of that kind. This is a fascinating topic that I don't have time to pursue in more detail now. So that's an overview of this complex shifting space of book publishing. It's a wonderful you know, field of change and, and ferment, although the changes are not the same as you might have expected if you come at it simply with the eye of thinking that ebooks were taking off and it was all about the ebook. It's not just that issue. So I'll draw it to stop there. Okay.